Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. Appreciate you listening to Bible Crossfire every week at this same time, where we try to do our very best to explain what the Bible teaches, what the truth is. After all, Jesus said in John eight thirty two, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So it's important that we follow the truth because only the truth is going to make us free from sin. Last several weeks, we've been talking about passages that use the word if in the sense of being conditional, a conditional if statement. Here's one. We're just going through the, the New Testament in order. Colossians 1, 21 through 23 says, And you that were sometime alienated, enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature, which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Now notice it says, if you continue the faith, grounded and settled. There's our if statement. There's our condition. And what's the result if we meet that condition? Well, verse 21 says, we'll be reconciled. Verse 22 said he'll present us holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. But that's only if we continue in the faith, grounded and settled. Let's suppose we start out in the faith, we become a Christian, but we don't continue in the faith. We don't continue as a Christian. We leave the faith. This says if you continue in the faith, then God will present us holy and unblameable and unreprovable, unreprovable in his sight. We will be reconciled. But the implication is if we don't continue in the faith, we won't be presented holy and unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. We'll lose our salvation. That's pretty clear. I mean, if anybody that knows what the word if means ought to be able to see what that means. And then how about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14? It says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will bring with him. Now, this is not exactly what I've been talking about. This is not really an if conditional statement. Well, in this sense, it's not saying if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then also those that sleep in Jesus will God bring with him as if it means if we don't believe that, they won't. Jesus won't bring him with him. That's not what it's saying. It's, it's basically saying this. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, then you ought to also believe that those which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Not that 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 uh, those that sleep in Jesus will God bring with him only if you believe that Jesus died and rose again. No. But if you believe this, then you ought to believe this other. If you believe this, then you ought to believe this other. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, then you ought to also believe those which sleep in Jesus will God will bring with him. If you have a Bible question or comment, please call us at 877-655-6755. 877-655-6755. And then 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Did you know that verse was in the Bible? A lot of people don't seem to know. Even even believers don't know that verse is in the Bible. If a man won't work, neither should he eat. Now, we are to help folks less fortunate than we are. In the congregation I'm with, we, we, we use a lot of our money, contribution, 
helping folks, other Christians like in Africa and so forth, people who are less fortunate than we are. But we don't, and we shouldn't help as individuals either. We don't help people who are not who are hurting because they're not willing to work. Don't do that. That just encourages people not to work. The Bible says if a man won't work, neither should he eat. So we are to help people less fortunate than we are, but not folks who are not willing to work. We help people who are less fortunate than we are because of circumstances, for example, out of their control. Let's say a tornado hits their house and they lose everything. Help them. They're in Africa and there's a, a drought for a year or two or three. Help them. That's not their fault. But if they're not working, well, they can solve that problem right quick. They can start working and then they can, then they don't need any help. Don't help somebody that's not willing to work is the point. Second Thessalonians 3 verse 10. That's what you learn from the force of this if statement. If any man would not work, neither should he eat. And then how about Second Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15? It says, and if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So if any man does not obey God's word, we're supposed to note that man. Have no company with him. Why? Because we hate him? No. Because we want to make him ashamed. We don't count him as an enemy, but we admonish him as a brother. It's the same reason that we spank our children. We're not trying to hurt them. Uh, we're not trying to uh, count him as an enemy. Uh, it's because we love them. We're trying to make them ashamed. We're trying to, with a child, we're trying to correct bad behavior. With a Christian who falls away, we withdraw from them. As we'll see, that's the word used in a minute. We withdraw from them, not because we don't like them, not because we're trying to drive them away, but because we're trying to get them to come back. We're trying to get them ashamed of their sins so they'll repent. Here's that word withdrawal. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse six, same chapter. Command you, brethren, in the that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the of us. That's what verses 14 and 15 is talking about. If a man does not obey the word, the God's word, a Christian, if he, if he leaves God's, quits following God's word and he won't repent, verse 6 says we withdraw from him. We're supposed to withdraw from him. Have no company with him. 1 Corinthians 11, 5, verse 11 says, no, not to eat. Does the church you worship with, do they ever practice this? Do they ever withdraw from the disorderly? Do they ever withdraw from folks who won't work? Do they ever withdraw from folks who uh, who are out of ranks, who quit following the Lord? Christians, they're Christians, but maybe, maybe a man divorces his wife for incompatibility and remarries another. Does the church do anything about it? Do they demand that he repent, get out of that second marriage, that, that second marriage, that adulterous marriage, and go back to the first? Or they just accept him as he is? Second or third marriage, be that as it may. Do they ever withdraw from him if he won't repent? Have you ever heard of your, the church you worship with withdrawing from somebody who won't repent? A Christian. Well, perhaps you need to think about where you're going to church. If the church you worship with doesn't ever withdraw from people, doesn't even consider withdrawing from people. You never heard that preached on. You never heard that talked about because it's right there in the Bible. And I know why preachers avoid it, why churches avoid it, because it's not any fun to practice. We don't practice things because they're fun or not fun. 
We practice things because the Bible tells us to. God wants us to do it, so we do it. And the Bible says you ought to withdraw from the disorderly Christians who fall away, who are, go off into sin. So we do it, even though it's not fun. We don't spank our children because it's fun. We do it because we're trying to correct bad behavior. If you have a Bible question or comment, call us at 877-655-6755. I imagine no less than 5% of the congregations across America, United States, and Canada, of all the different types, less than 5% ever even talk about this, much less ever practice this concept of withdrawal. You skip over those passages. That's what churches tend to do. That's what believers tend to do. Let's do what in the Bible, the, the things that we agree with, the things that we like. The things that we don't agree with, the things that we don't like, like we'll just skip over those things. Just ignore that. That's the way most believers do. That's the way most churches do. Of course, you can't go to heaven like that. Jesus is only the author, source of eternal salvation to them that obey him, Hebrews 5, 9. So if you don't obey Christ, if you're not withdrawing from Christians who are walking disorderly, then you're not obeying Christ. You won't receive eternal salvation, according to Hebrews 5, 9. How about 1 Timothy 3? I'm going to look at the first seven verses, I guess. It says, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. There's our if statement. If he desires the office of a bishop, I think we could use an elder or pastor. If he desires this office, he, des he desires a good work. But then he gives the qualifications for a bishop, an elder or a pastor. He says, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Do you, where you go to church, do you all have a bishop or a pastor, an elder? Is he blameless? Is he the husband of one wife? He has to be the husband of one wife to be qualified to be a bishop, according to this. It says, not given to wine, no striker, nor, not greedy of filthy lucre, but a patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. These are all qualifications of the bishop, the elder, the pastor. He has to have these qualifications or he's not qualified to be in that office, that position. Verse 5. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. There are qualifications for a pastor. Most churches don't pay any attention to that. Sometimes they have a pastor who's single or have a young pastor who's married without any children. That's not meeting the qualifications of First Timothy. The pastor has to have faithful children. Most churches don't pay any attention to those qualifications, though. They're not really that worried about what the Bible says. They're more worried about doing what they think is good. So if this guy looks like he'd be a good pastor, because maybe he's an eloquent speaker, they're not worried about the qualifications that God gives in the Bible. Why should they worry about that? They don't follow the Bible in other things like Prohibition against women preachers or gay marriage or how that baptism has to be an immersion of a believer, not the sprinkling of a baby, or how it has to be done for the remission of sins. Baptism, Acts 2.38. They don't pay attention to things like that. Why should they pay attention to the qualifications for an elder? If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. Excuse my sarcasm, but I'm trying to make a point. I'm trying to wake people up to what the truth is. 
Jesus said in John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. So you're only a true disciple if you continue in Jesus's word. You have all these different churches out here teaching different things. They can't all be continuing in Jesus's word because they're teaching different things. <clears throat> two plus two cannot equal four and five at the same time. Yet most churches say two plus two is four and five and six and seven and eight. All of those answers are right when it comes to religion. You can teach just about anything and you're still going to be right. <clears throat> Religion's the only thing you can be wrong in and still be right. If you take the wrong medicine, it's going to hurt you. Say you take poison instead of taking headache medicine. It probably is going to kill you. You can't say, well, I'll be all right because I thought I was taking headache medicine. But you were taking poison. It's going to kill you no matter what you thought. So if you're not following the truth, it doesn't matter how sincere you are. If you're not following the truth, you're in the wrong. John 4.24 says we have to worship God in spirit and in truth. You have to be not only sincere, right attitude, right motivation. You have to be worshiping him, serving him in truth. And Jesus said in John 17.17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The word of God, the New Testament in particular for us, defines for us what the truth is. We have to obey the truth in order to be purified from our sins, 1 Peter 1, verse 22. So if we're obeying something different than the truth, we're not going to be purified from our sins, even if we think we're purified from our sins. That didn't prove anything. Just because you think you're saved doesn't mean you're saved. <clears throat> A lot of churches will teach that. Well, you know you're saved because you feel like it. No, you know you're saved because the Bible teaches you're saved. That's how you know you're saved. <clears throat> how about 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, the next verse on our list, the next if condition. It says, for every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving. You know, during the Old Testament times, it was wrong to eat pork and catfish. That was a sin. I like pork and catfish. Now... It's okay to eat pork and catfish as long as you receive it with thanksgiving. Well, that illustrates the difference. We're not under the Old Testament law anymore. Most churches say, oh, yeah, the Old Testament is still valid, but they're not consistent. They don't do animal sacrifices. They eat pork and catfish. If we're still under the Old Testament law, if that was still binding, we couldn't eat pork and catfish. We would have still have to do animal sacrifices. Couldn't work on Saturday, the Sabbath. We'd have to circumcise our little boys at eight days old. We wouldn't have a choice. People say they believe the Old Testament only when they want to believe so that they can bring the parts from the Old Testament forward that they like and agree with. <clears throat> but the parts they don't like and agree with, they'll leave them in the Old Testament. They won't say those parts are binding. It's not very consistent just to pick and choose from the Old Testament what we want, is it? Really, the point of Hebrews 7.12 in Galatians 5.3, he says, if you be circumcised, you're a debtor to the whole law. Galatians 5.3. It's, it's all or nothing. Either none of the Old Testament is binding or all of it is. And we know the point Paul's making. There is none of it is. We're under the New Testament law exclusively. If you have a Bible question or comment, the lines are wide open. The number to call is 877-655-6755. The number to call is 877-655-6755. First Timothy 5.4 says, but if, there's our if word, if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable for God. 
So if when you're trying to think about taking care of the widows of the church, first of all, this is saying if they have children or nephews, the children or nephews should be taken care of before the church would. Same thing we see, the same concept in 1 Timothy 5, 16. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them and let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. So what's the force of the if statement there, this if condition? Well, widows need to be taken care of by the church, but only if they don't have family. If they have family, the family ought to do it. So then the church is going to be able to afford to take care of the widows that don't have any family. That's the point. And then another if statement, 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. But if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than infidel. So you've got to be providing for your own. That's not just a husband providing for his family. The context there is taking care of widows. If you have family, even if it's not your immediate family and it's your responsibility, you need to provide for them. Could be your mother who's a widow. If you don't provide for her, and if you don't provide for your wife and kids, that's included. You've denied the faith and you're worse than an infidel. You've got to take care financially, materially, of your family. Both immediate family and those you have responsibility toward, like your parents and so forth. Could even be an aunt, maybe. If you don't, the if statement here says you've denied the faith. You're worse than an infidel. How about the if statement, 2 Timothy 2.12? It says, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. You know, if we're really living like a Christian ought to and contending for the faith like we ought to, we're going to suffer. We're going to suffer persecution. People are not going to like everything we do if we're really bearing down hard with the truth. And I don't mean being in a mean way, but we're, we're standing for the truth resolutely if we're doing that people some people are not going to like us second timothy 3 12 says yea and all that will live godly in christ jesus shall suffer persecution so if you're not suffering persecution as a christian probably means you're not really doing what you ought to be doing as a christian you're either not living godly or you're not preaching the truth like you ought to if you're telling homosexuals, for example, that that's a sin, they have to get out of that to be saved. Well, they're probably going to object and probably going to get mad at you. Nothing like that's ever happened to you. You're probably not preaching out preaching the truth like you ought to be. How about 2 Timothy 2, 21 and 22? It says, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. you got to purify yourself, purge yourself from these things. It says if a man purge himself from these things, then he'll be meet for the master's use, suitable to help the cause of Christ. What kind of things are you talking about? Maybe he's talking about verse 22. Fleeing the youthful lust, following righteousness, faith, charity, peace. If you don't do that, you're not going to be suitable for the master's use. That's the force of the if statement there. Again, if you have a Bible question or comment, call us at 877-655-6755.
You know, I sometimes say on this program, you can find a verse on just about every page of the Bible proving what saved, always saved is false. Here's one, Hebrews 3.14. It's one of these if statements we're talking about. It says, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And so we have a beginning of our confidence when we become a Christian. If we hold that steadfast unto the end, we'll be a partaker of Christ. That's the force of the if statement. And the implication is also this, though. If we don't hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end, if we fall away, if we quit serving Christ faithfully, we won't be a partaker of Christ. We won't be saved. That if statement proves once saved, always saved is false. Because I know a lot of people won't accept that. Why? Because they want to be able to live any way, any old way they want to and still be saved. So they refuse to accept the fact the Bible teaches against once saved, always saved, not because there's any verses on their side, but because they want to live a certain way. And if I, so I'm going to believe once saved, always saved, because I want to be saved, even though I'm in my second or third marriage, or I cuss, or I drink, or do any kind of uh, immoral activity. I want to be able to do that and still be saved, so I'm going to believe once saved, always saved. I don't care what the Bible teaches. I think that's the attitude of a lot of people. How about Hebrews 8, verse 7? It says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. We, we were talking about this with another verse a while ago. There's at least two covenants in the Bible. Old covenant, new covenant. He said, if that first covenant had been faultless, there should be no place of insult for the second. We're under the second covenant now, the way this is dividing them up. Covenant, a good synonym for covenant is agreement. Or really, if you're reading through the book of Hebrews, like we are in this passage, covenant and testament are used interchangeably. And that's because covenant and testament actually come from the same Greek word. So if you're reading through the King James Version, it'll have the same Greek word, but sometimes it's translated covenant in the book of Hebrews, sometimes testament. So when we see that we're under this second covenant, new covenant, it's the same as saying we're under the second testament, under the New Testament. What law then are we responsible to obey today? The New Testament, the new covenant, not the Old Testament. Again, this is why we don't have to do animal sacrifices. This is why it's okay if I want to cut my grass on Saturday or work on Saturday. This is why it's okay if I want to eat pork or catfish because the Old Covenant is no longer binding. The Old Testament is no longer binding. We're under the New Testament. If you want to know what to do to please God today, you turn to the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12 reads this way. For the priesthood being changed, there is made a necessity a change also of the law. So it's saying, well, the priesthood changed. We know that because... Jesus is our high priest, and he couldn't be a priest if the Old Testament law was still binding, only because he's not from the tribe of Levi. That's the point here. And if the priesthood's changed, he's saying, well, then there's a change also, a change also in the law. So the whole law's changed. If you change part of it, the whole thing has changed. We're under the New Testament law exclusively. Should we still study the Old Testament? Yeah, we should still study the Old Testament, but not because it's our law for today because the New Testament quotes or refers to the Old Testament quite frequently. And so uh, learning what the Old Testament teaches is going to help us understand the New Testament, which is our law for today. You see that? We don't try to justify things we do today because we find them in the Old Testament. If we want to find authority for our practice today, religious practice, we turn to the New Testament. If you can't find it in the New Testament, don't practice it. 
Whatever we do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, Colossians 3, 17. Do it by the authority of Christ, not by the authority of Moses. Law of Moses, Moses is their leader. Christ is our leader. Appreciate you listening this evening. If you would like a free one-hour phone Bible study with me sometime at your convenience, I want you to call or text me at 256-682-9753. Call or text me at 256-682-9753 if you want a free one-hour phone Bible study with me at your convenience.